This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by ClimateCast. From the rise of superstorms to innovations in green energy, our changing climate is at the forefront of societal change and adaptation. Don't be in the dark about climate change. Join meteorologist Paul Hutner for ClimateCast, a weekly podcast that makes sense of important climate news. ClimateCast with Paul Hutner is available now. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 15, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, staff writer John Cohn is here to talk about three very different places with one serious commonality, rising HIV numbers, Nigeria, Russia, and Florida. Why are these disparate places still battling HIV? And after that, we have Armin Raznahan. He talks about his team's research into variations in human brain size, what parts of the brain get bigger in people with bigger brains? Now we have John Cohn, staff writer for science, and he wrote three, count them, three feature stories this week on HIV. Hi, John. Hi. How are you doing? Good. I, I don't mean to talk first and foremost about the amount of content that you wrote, but <laughs> this, is, this is a lot of stuff about HIV. Are you surprised that you're writing this much this far into your career covering this disease? Yeah, I keep thinking that I'm going to stop writing about HIV AIDS, Yeah, but the complexity keeps increasing. And the challenges are new, even though the disease, you know, is the same disease since we've known about since, what, the 80s? The thing that's always fascinated me about HIV AIDS is how the epidemic is different everywhere I go. And the response is different everywhere. You know, and that's, and that's what this package is really looking at ultimately is three places that have nothing in common with each other. I mean, really, come on, Nigeria, Russia, and Florida. It even is kind of comical for me to say that in the same breath. But they all have serious HIV AIDS epidemics for different reasons and different drivers. And they have completely different politics and cultures and geography and populations. Yeah. And that really throws into relief the fact that the science here, while it's not solved, there's no vaccine for HIV, but there is a very solid approach to how to deal with this. But that's that's really not the issue in all of these places. Let's first just remind everybody what people are supposed to be doing to keep themselves HIV free. Yeah, I, I like the way you frame that because there is a common thread. They're all human beings and human beings respond to antiretroviral drugs 
the same regardless of whether they live in Russia, Nigeria, or Florida. And antiretroviral drugs prevent people who have HIV from immune destruction and developing the disease, AIDS. And it also prevents people from transmitting the virus. It doesn't eliminate transmission, but it reduces the risk dramatically if you're on good treatment. Those two things combined can change the look and direction of an epidemic dramatically. Add on top of that the fact that women who are pregnant and infected with HIV, who are on good drugs and whose babies receive those drugs for six weeks or so, are very unlikely to transmit the virus. And we know that people who are uninfected, who take antiretroviral drugs, something called PrEP, also protect themselves. And it works really well. So all these things combined, on top of the old-fashioned condom promotion, behavior change, and male circumcision, can lead to a really powerful package that can bring epidemics to an end. But that's not what's happening, say, in Russia right now. Russia is seeing a surge in cases, right? Russia is seeing about a 10% increase a year at a time when almost everywhere in Europe is seeing a decrease. Russia also accounts for 85% of all the new infections over the past five years in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. So something is really broken. So what ingredients are missing in order to get HIV under control there? So Russia, when I was there in 2010, it had an epidemic driven by people who inject drugs. It shifted now. It's about half heterosexual transmission and half people sharing syringes and needles. Russia long has kind of turned a blind eye to the scientific evidence that has shown how to stop transmission in people who inject drugs. We know that if you provide clean needles and syringes to people, get them opiate substitutes like methadone, you give them counseling, try to reunite them with their families, we can drive transmission in those communities down to 1%. Well, Russia basically doesn't believe in syringe and needle exchange, and the federal government doesn't support it. It allows it to occur from some you know, non-governmental organizations but very sparse. It outlaws methadone and opiate substitutes. And it basically sees drug users as criminals, as opposed to treating them as people who have a disease. Right. Well, one thing you talk about in your story is the way that there are activists and people with HIV in the country who are joining together to form networks to supply each other with drugs. In the face of all this, Russia has had a really hard time getting drugs to people who know that they're living with the virus. And only about 30% of people in Russia who know their HIV status receive antiretrovirals. And even those people who receive them, the government has had problems with what are called stockouts. It runs out of drugs. So these activists and advocates have started an underground network they call a reserve pharmacy, where they collect drugs from people who either have changed regimens or have died, and then redistribute them to people who are in need. And that's really just something happening in Russia. People are doing what they would do in that situation to solve the HIV problem. But then if you look, say, at Nigeria, you see a totally different kind of local response to HIV that really does reflect the culture as well. Nigeria's problem is different in so many ways. I mean, one problem in Nigeria is it's not really clear who is infected. They, they have estimates. But they're just now launching what will be the world's largest survey ever done to determine true infection rates. On top of that, Russia has this 
problem of mother-to-child transmission under control. Nigeria has more cases of mother-to-child transmission than any country. Yeah. And, and it accounts for one out of four mother-to-child transmissions in the world. What's going on? I mean, that's an easy thing, relatively speaking, to stop. You treat the mother with good antiretroviral drugs. You treat the baby for six weeks. You monitor them both. And the transmission rate between mother to child drops to less than 1%. But in Nigeria, it's around 21%. It's really, I think, a symbol of the scope and scale of the problem. And this is about mothers basically not seeking out health care that's connected with HIV treatment or testing. Yep. And it's about poverty and it's about cultural issues and tradition. I mean, about 40% of pregnant women never intersect with formal health care. They do have traditional birth attendants who have their own little quote unquote clinics. And I, I went to one in Lagos where the woman who ran it had been there for many, many years. And she was an educated traditional birth attendant who had been taught to allow HIV testing to occur at her clinic. Most don't. And so these women see their traditional birth attendant never get tested for HIV. If you don't get tested, you don't get treated. So is that something that, that people are trying to focus on to improve testing is the birth attendants? Absolutely. They're trying to do incentives to the traditional birth attendants to send women who come to them to the hospital. They don't want to lose their business, right? Yeah. And then on top of all that, Nigeria has a political problem with Boko Haram and, you know, a region of the country where healthcare is really just completely decimated anyway. Yeah. And it has a huge population. It has 180 million people. And they have lots of other health problems. Right. It's not, it's not a top priority. It hasn't been. Well, I think we should turn to Florida before we wrap up and just talk about, you know, why you picked Florida. I mean, it's not, yeah. I mean, yeah. Why did you pick poor Florida, John? <laughs> so, well, if you look at the United States, Florida jumps out. Miami has the highest new infection rate of any city. And in the top 10 cities with high new infection rates, four of those places are in Florida. And Florida has the highest number of people developing AIDS. Florida also has the highest mother-to-child transmission, even though it's extremely low in the United States. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about like 100 total. Maybe Florida has 10. It still is indicative, again, of, of a systemic problem. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go to Florida to see what, why. What's, why Florida? We know that the southern region in the United States accounts for about half of all the people living with HIV and more than half of all the new infections. And Florida is in the South. Right. But it's more, it's more than that. You've also got immigrant populations from all over the place. Huge, huge immigration. A number of people are coming to Florida from countries that have higher prevalences. A lot of small Caribbean islands have higher prevalence than the United States. On the flip side, you have people coming from these Latin American countries, particularly men who have sex with men, that don't have a lot of HIV and they come to Miami and they don't change their behavior. Right. But they're at much higher risk simply because they've moved to Miami. Some of this also makes outreach and treatment difficult because you have such mixes of population with different risk factors. And different languages. Yeah. Haitians speak Creole. You have all these Hispanic people who speak Spanish. You have all these cultural issues and you have different churches, you know, different influences that lead people to feel stigma or discrimination. That's what really fascinated me about Florida is just how complex it is. There is no one size fits all for Florida. Mm -hmm. you've, you've got to tailor make everything. And how has that response been? It's getting better. And I think one of the indications that it's getting better is people are more aggressively 
talking about the problem. Yeah. I see this all over the world, Sarah, where people have an allergy to discussing HIV problems. They want to just pat themselves on the back. Mm -hmm. We're doing a great job. And, and Florida is now really starting to talk at a high level about what we're doing wrong and what we need to do better. Yeah. Okay, John. Well, everyone should definitely check out this print package and the video that accompanies it. Is there anything else we you, sh you want to talk about here? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the overall framework is this is occurring in an era when we're talking about ending the AIDS epidemic globally by the year 2030. And the name of this package is far from over because we are far away from that goal. Despite the progress that's occurring in many, many places, Florida, Russia, and Nigeria aren't alone. There are other places that similarly aren't using all the tools that exist to get the most out of the powerful interventions we have today. All right. Thank you so much, John. Thank you very much. John Cohn is a staff writer for Science. You can read about these stories and more at sciencemag.org news. Stay tuned for an interview with Armin Rosnahan on variations in human brain size and brain regions. This week's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun for all ages. This is something that would really suit me on a Saturday morning where I have not prepared anything. We don't have any classes. We don't have any visiting to do. We just get up putter around for breakfast and realize it's a rainy day and we have nothing to do with our three-year-old. If we just had a full project in one box, no trips to the hardware store for tools, no trips to the craft store for felt, we just had it all in one place, we would definitely be able to occupy ourselves for endless amounts of time. So that's what KiwiCo does. They have five different types of projects and there is something for kids of all different ages, from ages two to three, all the way through ages nine to 16. They create hands-on projects for kids that are not only fun, but also educational. KiwiCo wants kids to be fearless innovators. They design projects to help them develop creativity. Giving the kid in your life a KiwiCo subscription may make them more creative, more innovative, and quite possibly make you their favorite person. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com magazine. Again, that's kiwico.com magazine to try KiwiCo for free. Human brains vary a lot. One adult brain can be twice the size of another. But where does this variation come from? White matter, gray matter, perhaps bigger neurons? Armin Rasnahan and colleagues undertook a comparison study using images of more than 3,000 brains. And he's here to tell us what they found. Welcome, Armin. Hi, thanks for having me. So what were you trying to understand when you undertook this study? Were you looking to see how much variety there was in brains or where that variety was located? Yeah, so this, this study was led by two very talented PhD students within the group, Kirk Reardon and Jacob Seidlitz. And uh, together with our collaborators, we wanted to try and understand the relationship between this brain size variation that you've just described within humans and uh, organization of the human brain. We were sort of motivated to address this question by a couple of things. One is that in uh, a lot of our research, we're trying to pinpoint variation 
in anatomy in subcomponents of the brain. And to do that correctly, you need to understand the relationship between subcomponents and this very large degree of naturally occurring variability that there is. And the second motivation comes from our work with patients. So I'm a child psychiatrist and we study patients that have particular genetic syndromes as to understand risk for psychiatric problems. And many of these syndromes are associated with quite significant shifts in total brain size. So that was another motivation for trying to address this basic question of how does the size of the human brain relate to its organization? How were you able to kind of pin down what was changing with size? The first thing that we needed was uh, lots of brains, lots of yeah. images of brains. And, and the way we approached this question was to estimate surface area at 80,000 points across the cortical sheet in each brain using automated computational methods. And then at each of these 80,000 points across our whole sample, we asked, how does the size of this point vary as a function of the size of the total cortical sheet. Okay. And so the, the method that we used essentially gave us a number, a scaling coefficient for each of these 80,000 points. And a number of one means that the size of this point scales linearly with the size of the total cortex. So if you double the cortex area, that point would double in its size. But where we saw numbers bigger than one, that was telling us that this bit of the brain seems to become sort of hyper-expanded as brain size increases. And then where we saw numbers less than one, those are regions that were relatively under-expanding as brain size increases. Did you see a general trend where certain regions tended to be bigger with bigger brains and certain regions were smaller with smaller brains or that didn't grow as much with bigger brains? Absolutely, yeah. So the first finding was really just that, that the number isn't one across the whole sheet. There are some regions that are, well, we can call them hyper-expanding for short, and then there are others we can maybe call under-expanding as a shorthand. You, you made a really important distinction in your question is that the bits that under-expand are always absolutely Absolutely larger in bigger brained people relative to smaller brain people. It's just that their relative size changes. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about your numbers here. So you, you, there were regions that tended to be bigger or grow more in these larger brains. Can we talk a little bit about how much bigger these regions are in bigger brains? The areas that showed the strongest hyperexpansion had a scaling coefficient of one and a half. That means uh, if you double the size of the whole brain, these things would become one and a half times bigger still. Well, what do we know about these hyper-expanding areas that you are able to detect? The hyper-expanding regions showed a distinct cortical layering. They all tended to focus within one type of layering structure, which has an expansion of what's called supragranular layers. And these supergranular layers are thought to be really important for long-range connections between different cortical regions. So it suggested to us that these hyper-expanding regions might be specialized for integration of, of information. So it couldn't be that you have more neurons, you have a bigger brain, so you have more connections. So these are just structural... Yeah, so, so the, the histological maps don't tell us anything directly about function but they tell us something about the unique organization of those cortical areas. That message was a little bit was sort of reinforced a bit by the gene expression findings. One of them had to do with uh, synapses. So there was an enrichment of genes involved in these structures that mediate connections between neurons. And the second prominent gene expression signature 
had to do with mitochondria. So these are the sort of batteries or, or powerhouses of cells. And it suggested there was an upregulation in these hyperexpanding regions of uh, pathways for generating energy, suggesting that they might, they might have different energy needs than, than other regions. Well, there's a third way you tried to investigate the functionality here, and that was, was with using a connectivity map. Can you talk about that? The cortical sheet has been reproducibly shown to kind of, one can think of it as being divided into different sets of cortical regions that tend to work together as teams. And we found that the hyper-expanding regions tended to sit within two networks. The default mode network is the name of one of them, and the other is or has to do with dorsal attentional networks. So these are parts of the brain that work together to support the highest level integrative processes. So they're kind of one way of thinking of them is as conductors of the orchestra. And they have this prominent role in integrating and combining information from lower order cortical systems. Very interesting. I know there are regions associated with hearing and vision, and, and that really just didn't come up at all when you looked at where these hyperexpansion, no, nothing like a simple, here's where this region is, and look, it's, it's hyperexpanded with bigger brains. Nothing that direct came up, it seems exactly. like. Exactly. I mean, in, in many ways, it was the, the relatively under-expanding regions were notable for the fact that they tended to center on these lower order sensory cortices, so parts of the brain that are very clearly established in processing incoming visual information or incoming sensory information tended to be uh, to show more of an under-expanding pattern. What can you do with this information with respect to some of the clinical concerns that you mentioned at the beginning here? You know, if you're looking at somebody who has a genetic disorder and you're wondering if their brain has structures that are under or oversized. But yeah, that's, that, that's a great question. We're sort of starting to think about applying this method to our clinical work. And, and it helps in a couple of ways. The first is that a lot of the methods that we've had in the field so far have assumed that scaling is linear. Mm -hmm. And our study shows that scaling is not linear and it's not linear in a regionally specific way. So this information helps us more accurately control for brain size and better pinpoint the sort of variations in anatomy that we see in patients. So that's one uh, value. And then the second value, I think, is more of a conceptual level in that we've spoken a little bit about how these hyper-expanding regions have several signatures that they're responsible for integrating information. And another signature we saw was they were metabolically expensive, and we know that they grow more than other regions. So we also think of the scaling map as a map of how the brain is spending its money. Hmm. And I think that's important when we think of disease states, because presumably the, the brain is differentially investing in different cortical regions for a reason. The regions that hyperexpand must somehow be deserving of all the extra energy they're consuming to get hyperexpanded and the extra energy they we showed that they consume at rest. So it suggests that there are kind of different functional roles of these hyperexpanding versus underexpanding systems. And that helps us interpret some of our patient findings because there's growing evidence that multiple disorders of higher cognitive function, so lots of the sorts of things we might see in a a neurodevelopmental or psychiatric clinic are associated with changes within this hyperexpanding system. 
So it seems to be sort of disproportionately involved, we think, in the biology of some of these disorders of higher cognitive function. Okay, Armin, thank you so much for talking with me. No worries. Armin Raznahan is the chief of the Developmental Neurogenomics Unit at the National Institute of Mental Health Intramural Research Program. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. And while you're there, you can read the research and news stories discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.